We recently concluded a teaching series called Experiencing Spiritual Vitality in which we've kind of focused on what scripture teaches about the Holy Spirit. And in that series, if you remember, we considered how we can actually walk in, be influenced by experience, the Holy Spirit's guidance, his fruit, his power in our lives. But scripture speaks of kind of a flip side to that reality also. That according to scripture, there are also spiritual powers in creation working against what God desires. There are spiritual powers who would kind of in a similar way want to influence us, direct us uh, away from the good, holy, joyful, loving ways in which God invites us and calls us to live. So scripture describes, really what you could say, a spiritual battle. And there's one description of this battle. One of the descriptions is in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. This is in the book of Ephesians where Paul expresses quite emphatically these words. This is in Ephesians chapter six. And as we hear these words, remember, this is the word of God. And Paul wrote there in verse 12, For we do not wrestle, we don't struggle, we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul says, we don't battle in this life. Understand, only against what we can see and touch. We don't just battle against kind of human forces or opponents or just material things. Our battle is also with spiritual forces of evil that exist in the world. And I want you to know, it's not just mentioned in this verse in Ephesians 6. I mean, Scripture repeatedly talks about this spiritual battle in which it says we're engaged. In, In fact, if we go to Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. And it wasn't just Paul talking about this. Peter says this. This is in his first epistle, 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But I think this is reality. I I think you ask a person what they know or believe about this spiritual warfare, and I think it's safe to say most are confused at best. I think there's some who would be hostile, maybe openly dismissive of this whole concept, And, and others still might be just completely unaware or uninformed. So what I'd like us to do in this new teaching series, we're just calling it spiritual warfare is to consider what scripture claims and tells us about this spiritual battle, this spiritual warfare, in which it says, we live daily, whether we're aware of it or not. And and so through this series, we're gonna be asking questions like, okay, so who are the opposing spiritual forces we face? And what about this one called the devil or Satan? What about the demonic forces? How is their evil expressed in our world? Do they truly even exist? And other questions along that line. But today, this is what I'd like to do. I'd I'd actually like today 
to be a bit of a bridge between our last teaching series and this series. So our focus today is gonna be in the book of Acts. If you wanna turn there with me, if you have your Bible or Bible app with you, if you wanna turn to Acts chapter four, that's what I wanna look at today. And and let me set the context for what's happening here before we read the passage. And and maybe if you remember, in Acts chapter three, Peter and John, this is shortly after the Holy Spirit had come upon them and the followers of Jesus just with great fruit and power at Pentecost. Peter and John, they go up to the temple in Jerusalem, and as they're going to the temple, they pass along a man who had been lame since birth, and kind of prompted by the Spirit, they heal him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the crowd that is amassed around them, the Jewish crowd, they just kind of erupt with excitement and wonder, and they follow Peter and John up into the temple, and, and Peter there with this great crowd around him, if you can picture the scene, he starts preaching again, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and, and he's calling these Jewish people to repent, to turn to Jesus. So just note this. The the ministry experience, as as we kind of get ready for this, the ministry experience of Peter and the early church leading up to Acts 4, it it was marked by this just delightful, God-generated success, almost with an unrealistic ease in Acts 2 and 3. And, And as the wind of the Spirit came on the church in Acts 2, we read of those just, there were signs, wonders, ministry, fruitfulness, there were miracles, there were life transformation, conversions by the thousands. They, they were just flowing. It was like everything they touched ministry-wise was turning to gold. And that's why we can't just look to Acts 2 and 3 as our model for the body of Christ. We need to move to Acts 4. And in Acts chapter four, kind of this ministry honeymoon for the early church comes to a sudden close. And this is what we read. We're in Acts chapter four, and I'll pick it up in verse one. And as Peter and John were speaking to the people in this temple, the the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came up to them. Again, the Sadducees, they were a powerful Jewish religious group. And and they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so they arrested Peter and John, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But even so, many of those who had heard the word in the temple believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. There it is again, just this incredible fruit, just lives transformed. But look at verse five. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas. Now note those two names. Also John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And, And when they had set them in the midst, Peter and John in the midst of them, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? And friends, in this passage we see a reality of kingdom ministry that seems to be a very common reality. And it's this, and I want us to catch it. That right along with all the power and glory and fruitfulness and advancement of the Holy Spirit-empowered ministry, there is mixed into the very same pot, trouble, tension, setbacks, even seeming defeat, right in the middle of profound triumphs. Because this is the reality that we can see from the book of Acts. When 
the wind of the Holy Spirit moves among God's people, waves of opposition also begin to rise up against God's people. You want the wind? You want the wind? You also get waves. You will get waves because we're in a spiritual battle. I mean, is the Spirit of God moving? Well, expect spiritual opposition to rise up along with it. And as we look at these events in Acts 4, it strikes me that on one hand, you read through this, this passage records, I think you could say, one of Peter's best days in ministry. I mean, it it says even that 5,000 men came to faith in Jesus because of his one sermon. And again, that's just describing the men. There would have also been women, youth, and children there. In fact, most scholars estimate there was probably around 15,000 or more individuals that came to faith in Christ in response to Peter's sermon on this one day. Not even including the 3,000 who came to faith at Pentecost. Peter's having a real good day here, right? (laughs) I gotta tell you, as a pastor, this is kind of a dream day he's having at this point. And here's what hit me. On this very day, best day of ministry ever for Peter, he's also having his very worst day of ministry ever. I mean, he'd never been in prison before. I mean, he, he was a fisherman, right? Fishermen didn't get into prison. That's right where they went. I mean, Peter had seen Jesus nailed to the cross, but Peter never experienced this kind of opposition kind of personally in this way. But now the authorities, they grab him. Jesus isn't around. They arrest Peter. They throw him in prison. They leave him there overnight. And I would kind of guess as you reflect on this, that during that night in prison, I would imagine that a little bit of the glow of the miracles that had just happened kind of started to fade a bit for Peter. And and then the next day it says, he's brought before Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Okay, now, now you hear those names, and, and do you know the last time Peter would have encountered these two guys in this group? It, it would have been just about 50 days previous when these exact same guys, this council, arrested, tortured, and crucified Jesus. Okay, and now picture this. Now, Peter and John are standing before this very murderous group alone now. I don't think Peter's having such a great day anymore. What do you think? And at some time, Peter likely thought, knowing what this group had done to Jesus, this could be my last day. This could be it. And again, I just don't want us to miss it. That right here, when Peter is experiencing the outflowing of God's power through his own life beyond what he had ever known, he was also deeper in the hurt bag and getting pummeled in the battle more than he had ever known before. Any of you ever experienced that? You know, at a time in your life when you feel like you're seeing and experience the Spirit's blessing and fruitfulness and power in just profound ways, just kind of right along with it, you experience, man, challenge, difficulty, resistance, stress, opposition. And what hits me with the story of Peter is that, yeah, that's something I experience. That, that's something you experience. And I kind of note that sometimes our best days as a church, 
when, when God seems to be moving most powerfully among us, are ones where at the very same time, hard things are happening that can even kind of make you unable to see the, just the beauty of what God is doing. And so I think it prompts us to kind of come out of this with a question. All right, so how do we live in the reality of this kind of tension? How do we live when there's this kind of pressure being applied to our church, to our marriages, to our families, to our lives? How do we live in this warfare? And I think as soon as we ask the question, we can come up, I think, with, with one really simple way to immediately kind of relieve the pressure of, of waves pounding against your life and soul. I mean, for Peter here, a solution could have simply been this. Peter, I've, I've got a really simple way for you to be freed from the opposition. Just stop healing lame people. Stop preaching Christ. When you get a word of knowledge, just keep it to yourself. When God prompts you to take a step of faith, Peter, just don't move out with it. Don't pursue God. Don't seek to listen to his voice. And if you just quit moving in the power of the wind of the Spirit, the waves of opposition, they'll eventually down, die down as well. But Peter, he would literally rather die than live that way, right? He would rather die. In fact, he did eventually. So what do we do? I mean, what do we do when the opposition and trials come? And particularly in response to the wind of the movement of God. And as we just step into the series, as we just started, I just want to start by us considering Peter here. And I think you know this. You, you likely know that Peter often stands out in the Gospels as an example of what not to do in most situations, right? But here, he's, he's going to do real well. And I think as we look at him, there are two guide points that Peter models for us in, for us to learn how we live in this tension. Two guide points for us. And again, they'll sound familiar, but the first guide point is this. This is in Acts 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to this council, just stop there. So the advice, the first guide point through Peter's life is this again. Friends, how do we respond? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. The way you handle it the, and respond to it when the waves of human or spiritual opposition are pounding against your soul is for one, again, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and I want to be kind of blunt about this. I mean, I realize, I don't know about you, but if I shared with somebody that I felt like I was just being pounded by waves of resistance and troubles, if their response was only, what you need to do, Clyde, is be filled with the Holy Spirit, I think I'd feel a little frustrated by the response, honestly. And my frustration might even rise to anger at that answer, because it it kind of feels something akin to me telling somebody I, I just feel like I'm in a spiritual battle and I feel like I'm taking on enemy fire. And, and the response is just, you know what you need to do? You just need to let go and let God. Okay, thanks. Thanks a lot. I mean, it's, that sounds good. That sounds dependent. That sounds spiritual. Okay, what does it mean? I mean, how do you do that? 
And I, and I think it can feel like that when we say, or I say, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we ask, what does Peter teach us about being filled with the Holy Spirit? And I think we can kind of start in answering that question by observing this. Again, Peter had encountered these people here. He'd encountered Annas, Caiaphas, the temple guards, the priests, the Sadducees on another occasion. And I think if we compare Peter's two encounters with this very same group, I think we can get some help on what it means, how it is we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Because the first time that Peter encounters these guards and religious leaders, actually, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, if you turn over to the Gospel of Matthew, right near the end, in Matthew 26, Matthew 26 tells us that, that those who came to rest Jesus in the garden before his crucifixion, it was the same chief priests and elders. And along with those religious leaders, along with them, there was a Roman cohort that came to arrest Jesus. And we know that a Roman cohort at that time, it was around 600 soldiers. Which, picture this, it means that the group that came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was somewhere close to a thousand opponents. So the scene in the garden was just this massive group of opposition to Jesus, including 600 trained warriors versus Jesus and his 11 super tough rabbinic disciples. And, and the, the reality for Peter there was, okay, you're outnumbered. The odds are insurmountable, just as it will be in Acts chapter 4. But in Matthew 26, Peter wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit as he is in Acts. Peter was full of something else in Matthew 26. I mean, Peter was totally, completely full of himself. By that, I mean this. I mean, we know this, that before going to the garden with Jesus, Peter joined with Jesus as other disciples for the Last Supper, right? And, and it was there at the Last Supper that Jesus told them, told the group, that one of them would betray him. And so the disciples, we know, started arguing among themselves who the betrayer would be. And in that argument, Peter stood up and declared to Jesus, and I, I don't care what any of these others do, I will not betray you. I will never deny you. I can hold on. I can hold on. I can handle this. I can do this. And Peter wanted to do the right thing. But his method for doing it was me. Because I have what it takes. And so in Matthew 26, when Jesus is about to be resting in the Garden of Eden, that very same I can do this spirit, it was just kind of pumping through Peter's veins. And so you picture the scene, this crowd, this army of a thousand comes to arrest Jesus, and what does Peter do? Let's read. Verse 51 of Matthew 26. And behold, one of those who are with Jesus, now John's gospel tells us, he's talking about Peter here. He stretched out his hand, he drew his sword, he shouted, bring it on, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now I just threw in that bring it on part, but I'm pretty sure that's what he said. But Jesus stops Peter, right? He heals the servants here, and he says to Peter, put it away, Peter. Peter, you need to understand, this isn't my hour right now. This is the enemy's hour right now. My hour will come. 
And Jesus adds in Matthew 26, this is my paraphrase. You need to know something else, Peter. If we were going to deal with my enemies right now this way and, and wipe them out right now, I still wouldn't need your puny sword of self-effort. I've got 10,000 angels longing right out there for me to say the word, and they would come and take care of this. I have no need whatsoever for I, your I can do this, spirit. So put it away. Put this, it's me, business out of here, Peter. And, and that truth was carried on by the disciples into the church so that Peter would declare bluntly and remind us as we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 10.4, remember this, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but the weapons God has given us, they have a divine power to be able to destroy strongholds. So let me put it this way. In Matthew 26 in the garden, Peter isn't even looking for an empowerment from God. He, he's thinking, literally, this is what he did. Step back, I'm here. It hasn't even dawned on Peter yet that he might need a source of power beyond himself for this battle. Okay, so let's apply that to the filling of the Spirit and put it this way. Friends, you aren't going to be filled with the Spirit if you don't think you need him. That's reality. And in Matthew 26, Peter was full, but only of himself. Okay, but in Acts, Peter's filled with the Spirit. Because somewhere along the line, and it likely came through some pain, Peter was finally emptied of himself. I mean, in, in Acts, we get no sense of Peter saying before that group, Sanhedrin, <laughs> I got this. No, because he had already declared to the crowd, hey, understand, this miracle you just saw us do of this lame guy, it's not us, it is all Jesus. Acts 4.8, this was his attitude. Then Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, and, and Peter began to preach here. But he didn't preach himself, right? He preached Jesus. So Peter, he reminds us of this, friends. To be filled with the Spirit, I need to acknowledge my need of that filling and request it. And I think that leads us to what is our second guide point from Peter here. And it's really kind of implicit in this passage in Acts. And it's simply this. Okay, as the waves of opposition and challenge pounded against Peter, Peter just stayed centered on Jesus. And, and one of the places we get that is even what Peter says in his sermon. And really, as you study Peter's sermons in these opening book of, the opening chapters of Acts, it, they're almost a bit humorous as you study it, kind of as a pastor particularly, because it's essentially, in Acts 4, it's essentially the third time he's preached this sermon. That, that same sermon. Look at Acts 2, go to Acts 3, look at Acts 4. Okay, let's listen to it. This is what it says. This is Peter's word, Acts 8, 4 rather, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to this council, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this formerly lame, lame man is standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It's, he's become the cornerstone and, and there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
And if you read through Acts 2 and 3, you'll notice, my, this sermon sounds really familiar. <laughs> because, friend, it is the very same sermon. It's just the same point he keeps making again and again. Okay, so we then ask, how do we live and minister in the reality of the tension between, may it be, the wind of the spirit blowing, but then the waves of opposition pounding? And I think a really good word to us is this. Okay, when I'm in that kind of place, okay, I need to keep it simple and make sure I'm staying centered on Jesus. I, I need to keep it just that simple. It's Jesus. I don't, there's a lot I don't know. It's Jesus. There's salvation in no one else. He is my only hope. It's Jesus. In the battles, in the struggles, we need to make certain we just keep focusing on Jesus. Because when the waves of resistance start just kind of pounding against the door of my life, one of the results in our lives is it can lead to confusion for us, understandably. I and mean, when we start asking those questions that really we kind of are prone to and understandably ask, you start getting hit by the waves of life, of opposition, human or spiritual, and you start asking, I mean, what are you up to, God? I mean, are, are you here? Okay, God, I can see the waves. I can see the opposition really clearly. Oh, where are you in this? I, I can't even tell what you're doing right now, God. All, all I can see are the waves. I got a real quick, clear picture of the opposition. And in those moments in our lives, and just as Peter before the Sanhedrin, as he was wondering, I would imagine, what we wonder, God, what's going to happen here? <laughs> I mean, there's often so much we don't know. I mean, Peter didn't know. Peter didn't know if, if Acts 4 was going to be the end of his days. But Peter did this, and he held on to as we hold on to simply this. Okay, I need to remember. My salvation is in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men which, by which we must be saved. I need to remember this. Okay, Jesus is my only hope. Jesus is my only hope. You know, it's, it's additionally intriguing in this passage in Acts how Peter's opponents responded just to the simplicity of Peter's message and hope here. I mean, look at this. This is in verse 13. Now, when this powerful group saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, just common men, fishermen, they were astonished. And they recognized, what? These guys have been with Jesus. <laughs> so we remember this. Okay, when the waves begin to pound, when, when the battles come, okay, acknowledge your fear, do. I mean, we embrace our weakness, we're aware of it. We affirm our inadequacy, but don't stop there. Go to God, ask for his filling, and remember this. He, Jesus is my only hope. Amen? So as an expression of that hope and that reality, wherever you're at, Maybe life is all good. Maybe you're just all Acts 2 and 3 right now in your life. I hope it's the case. Or maybe you're experiencing a bit of Acts 4. In which case, wherever we're at, we're invited to the table to, in a physical, tangible way, say, hey, I want Jesus. 
And, and maybe you're here today or at Mosaic and, and maybe you've just been considering Jesus, but today would be in some way where you'd wanna say, yes, I, I want him. I don't even know fully what that means, but I want him. And, and we're gonna come together and invite you to join us as we come as the bread breaks and remember the last supper and Jesus saying, this is my body broken for you. We wanna receive from him in this meal. And, and we'll take this cup, we'll pass cups around, and once we've all received them, we'll take it likewise, and remember, he said, this is my blood poured out for you. This, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood, a new agreement with God. Because in this, we want to remember what he's done for us. But friends, by the wonder of God's grace, in this meal, we're fed spiritually in some sense. We receive from him. So let me pray, and then let's come and receive from Christ. Pray with me, would you? And Father, we do come with thanksgiving that you care for us, but also acknowledging, Father, there are many times in our lives, perhaps for some right now, where as the waves come, as the opposition comes, where it's difficult to see what you are doing. So I pray by your grace, Father, through your spirit, you would be filling us enabling us to bring you glory like you did with Peter and John, Father, in, in their challenge. Do so with us to sustain us, to guide us. Lead us to Jesus. And even now we come to this table knowing, oh, there's so much we don't understand. But we, we want him. We come now in faith to receive from him and ask you would fill us with him in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen.